This week on BSD Now, we talk about the Radeon KMS drivers being committed to 10 current, VeriSign embracing FreeBSD for the DNS root servers, Fetch gets SSL certificate verification support, the FreeBSD Foundation summer newsletter, a series of upcoming Linux and BSD conferences, and an interview with Peter Hessler about his OpenBSD BGP SpamD project. All that and more this week on BSD Now. Welcome to BSD Now, where we bring you the latest news and interviews from the world of BSD, along with tutorials for both advanced and beginner users. I'm your host, Alan Jude, and joined by... Chris Moore today. <laughs> Not today, every day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right, uh, so our top story this week is uh, the Radeon KMS drivers have been committed to 10 current. Oh, man, yes. about time. This is fantastic. It's probably one of the most requested things we've had every conference I yes. go to. Why doesn't it Yes, because NVIDIA has been, uh, you know, properly supported on FreeBSD for quite a long time now. Uh, yeah, you know, I've almost wanted to put one of those NVIDIA logos up on our <laughs> website just to be like, hey, you guys, NVIDIA works yes. well, and then maybe that'll light a fire, fire under the ATI yeah. and tell guys to get those drivers fixed. But yeah, up. so the, the first uh, revision of the Radeon drivers is now in the development tree. Uh, apparently it's mm-hmm. it's quite good. Um, or, you know the people that have tested it are not having any problems with it anymore, uh, and sure. so that's good timing because uh, they're expecting to cut ten uh, dash stable in a, sometime in October, I think, right? Correct. Yeah, um, in preparation for the ten release, and so we hope on rolling a couple ISOs based on a ten here in the next month or so as well. So that's so hopefully we can get that out to desktop users. Yeah, and that way. will probably bring in lots and lots of error reports. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it will. Lots of crash yeah. dumps. Well, it's just, you know, the the PCBSD audience probably covers a lot bigger range of uh, ATI cards than the couple of developers on the kernel mailing list. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, apparently, most of the code could be merged back to 9, uh, but because of changes in the VM subsystem, uh, it'd be a lot of work, and the developer who did the KMS driver doesn't want to do it, but somebody else could. I kind of doubt it'll yeah. happen. Ten's yeah, close with uh, right now, they're expecting ten release. Hope their their goal is December thirty first. So with it being that mm-hmm. close, I don't know that it makes sense to try to backport it to nine anyway. Yeah, I think a better spending time on uh, just bug fixing stuff for ten would be yeah. great. But uh, and it, yeah, the only thing uh, to note if you're going to go ahead and start testing is it does have the same issue where you lose your system console. If uh, you bring up the KMS yeah. mode, uh, it's the Intel driver has the same problem. Of course, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. until somebody rewrites yeah, the so, to, to play nice with KMS. Yeah. Uh, so there's a separate project called NewCons where somebody's trying to build a whole new system console, and this kind of depends on that. But that's not here yet, so we end up with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that happens. There's not <laughs> much to be done about it. Uh, but there's a nice wiki page that uh, keeps track of of the progress, and you can get news there. Uh, and Hopefully that uh, continues yeah. to come along, and then we'll have support, hopefully, eventually, for NVIDIA, Intel, and ATI, and that everything will start being smooth from there on out. Mm-hmm. I'm checking here. So who's the author? Is this Ed Shouten's work? Of uh, Newcons? Or, uh, yeah. I think so. 
Okay, yeah, it looks like him on the wiki here. Well, more power to him. I hope he can get that yeah. in here in the uh, future. Because the other the thing new cons will provide is also uh, Unicode's uh, support on the console. So people who use anything oh, other fantastic. than English at the text uh, the system console would be very pleased by that. Yeah, I always wondered what's the point of getting all the commands translated if you can't even display them. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah. So we translated all the man pages, and then if you pull them up, it just displays this gibberish. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, not so yeah, helpful. It's like, oh, I guess they work on the website, kind of. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So our next story is uh, VeriSign has started embracing BSD more, and uh, they've uh, there's a story at eWeek where they talk about some of the reasons why they did that, uh, on top of, you know, the fact that it provides a stable platform and it's a very good uh, base for a business because things don't get changed out from underneath you when you don't expect it and each release release is supported for at least a year and then uh you know every second release is two years uh you know that provides and don't ever laugh at a stable world exactly you have no idea how useful that is well for example uh verisign is still using freebsd 8.x right so they get Mm -hmm. the stable world even so they can upgrade to 8.4 or whatever but also means anything that built on any version of 8 will work on any other machine that also runs 8, uh, which when you get to scale like I do with like 80 servers, have the fact that 9 is 9, it doesn't matter if it's 9091 or 92 RC4, mm-hmm. everything just works. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. That was one of the reasons why we uh, uh, chose BSD for PCBSD originally. I right. was trying to do a package management system where I could roll a package that would, would run for more than six yeah. months on a variety of different targets. Because well, even like the API is stable to the point there's actually a compatibility package. right? So mm-hmm. if you said you guys were going to roll a uh, uh, 10 stable release of PCBSD and you could just cheat and install the uh, compat 9x and then your 9x packages will just work you don't have to necessarily build an entire different set of packages yeah that's something i've talked to a few guys at conferences about you know that's a really quick way if you just want to grab say the new ati code yep. want to play with those drivers you can take a pcbsd9 box upgrade the kernel and world to 10 install compat 9x and just go on your merry well way. i've actually my, my laptop does this i have uh um, it's a FreeBSD 9 system with ZFS as the root, and then I just took a snapshot of that, upgraded the kernel to 10, and installed the Compat 9X, and then I used boot environments to just, it's like, oh, I want to play with Beehive, and no, I went back to my 9 stable system. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> yeah, fantastic. it does a lot of... Yeah, boot environments kind of changes your life when you realize what you can do as a developer with it, or just for creating you know, sane backups. Yeah. And then, yeah, once you start talking about being able to replicate the snapshots... Or just clones yeah. and try stuff and then throw it away. And div- mm-hmm. The hardware is really disposable yeah. at this point. As long as your data is somewhere, you can bring exactly. it back. <clears throat> uh, yeah, so uh, back to VeriSign. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they said, you know, BSD is quite literally at the very core of what makes the Internet work. Uh, on top of the fact that, you know, BSD was the reference implementation of TCP IP and things like that, uh, Sure. VeriSign runs the registries for .com, .net, .gov, and a bunch of other top-level domains. So when you look up the address of a .com, that's going through a server at VeriSign. Uh, they they don't they use uh, BSD, Linux, Solaris, and I think HPUX or something. They use four different operating systems mm-hmm. so that if something goes wrong with any one of those, it's not going to affect more than a, like a quarter of their capacity. Right. So they are purposely aiming for the diversity and so 
you know, that's why they want to use support multiple projects, right? And, and especially mm -hmm. BSD because BSD is their favorite, but they have to use the other things to ensure they always have that diversity. And so sponsoring BSD and making sure that it continues to thrive is in their best interest. Very cool. And they're getting ready to uh, even give back a little to the community this uh, this year running VBSDCon, which is uh, in yes, October. Yes, which is uh, gonna be out it's an unconference style, uh, kind of like Meet BSD was last year. Uh, so there'll be mm -hmm. some lecture-type content like most of the conferences and then also some more uh, attendee-driven stuff like uh, Birds of a Feather and uh, they're doing lightning talks again, which was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, usually they get uh, eight or ten or so uh subject area experts and they just kind of spread around the room and then you group up with a couple of other attendees i think it was about five people at me bsd that's what it worked mm -hmm. out to be uh and then you just kind of go around in a circle and talk to each different speaker for about 10 minutes and so you get much more interaction you can ask them questions and and stuff and so you just get 10 minutes of of really intense discussion about a certain topic with the subject area expert and then you move on and do the next thing uh it's really nice to be able to get that a little bit of everything because, you know, uh, you look at the schedule for EuroBSDCon, which is coming up at the end of September, and there are 43 talks, but there's always three at once, and there's always two you want to be in at the same time. Sure, and so sure. with the lightning talk, you can get a little bit, you get that sampler, right? You get a little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you're looking at the, the subject or the title of a presentation, and it doesn't seem that interesting, but then you find out what it actually is, and it turns out it's you know everything's at least a little bit interesting and coming from the host perspective a couple times i've done this it's been really helpful you'll get all these different groups of guys coming in everyone has different questions mm -hmm. right and then when you do your your big group presentation at the end you know your 10 minute synopsis sometimes somebody will come up with a really good question that you can push back to the group and say we, we didn't even talk about this yep. before but this is some really neat point somebody came up with uh, just a great way is for me as a developer to get feedback from people and ideas and and uh, some ideas of stuff what we could talk about at the next uh, yeah talk. i know the developers of beehive said the same thing at meet bsd they were uh you know we kind of a bunch of people wanted to talk about it and we broke off and talked about it uh and they were like so we've developed this far and we have some general goals of what we want to do next but we really don't know what people are going to want to use this for and which features they want what's more important to them and and so mm -hmm. it's like, well, I needed to be able to do this, this, and this. <laughs> really, that's what I want it to do. Sure. And so, you know, if you focus more on building this part of the infrastructure and the API, it would be better for me because, you know, at that time I was mm -hmm. mostly focused on replacing Zen to build something like EC2, but in Canada. <laughs> sure. And so, you know, I needed a really easy programmatic way to control the, all the VMs for everything and and do all the, the plumbing. Well, and then I'm, I'm more like, how can I run this in cooperation with jails on the same right. box? Can I take a jail and then instantly boot it up in Beehive? So now it's virtualized, but then I don't need it virtualized anymore. Let's go back to a jail. Yes, that was the other one that we can, talked up. about was uh, a VFS hack so that you mm -hmm. could do like you do in a jail where you just like nullfs mount something. You could sure. have a beehive where it would actually, instead of using a disk image like a, a, a Zvol or something, you would actually... Mm -hmm pull in a subdirectory from the file system and treat that as yeah. the disk inside the virtual machine. And then on the host now, I can easy, easily share files, manipulate yeah. data without ever actually going into the VM. I mean, just some really cool yeah. potential with this. And it'd be crazy, all the cool stuff. So 
It's just a matter of getting it all done. <laughs> and the nice thing about these, the, the unconference format was I actually met more people. Like there were fewer people there than there were at EuroBSDCon, but I actually got to talk to people more because, you know, we weren't mm -hmm. sitting in a classroom style setup. We were, you know, there was a lot more hallway track. <laughs> I remember one of the first BSDs we did, uh, James from IX, he was really good about this. He went around and made everyone put away their laptops. Because, you know, as a speaker, the last thing you want to do is go to a classroom and see 50 yeah. laptops open. Everyone's just chatting on IRC. And it's like when you, when you get everyone to finally get out of their comfort zone, put those away, you can really have some good discussions yeah. and make some progress exactly. on some uh, important problems. Exactly. And so that's why Verisign wants to promote that, right? There's, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you get comfortable with something because it works well for your particular purpose and you find a good community that you can interact with. And that's why they picked FreeBSD. And in addition right. to giving back some code, they're uh, working on uh, really high volume connections because obviously being the root DNS servers, they have to deal with a huge number of, of DNS queries coming in and even TCP queries and stuff. Uh, so they're mostly working on getting that packets per second limit higher and higher. Uh, and so they have some patches for that. They've given back, but they decided that rather than just donating and giving back some code they wrote, they'd actually organize a conference and, and get more people, uh, you know, make things happen. Yeah, bottom line, if you're in the Virginia area or can get there, definitely come on out this October and, and join us out at a VBSDCon. Yep. should be a it will. good time. <clears throat> and it's, yeah, for people in North America, it's a lot easier to get there than Malta. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> About like six less layovers, yes, right? Yes, and, you know, 12 less hours. And <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, for me, it's great. It's the same time zone. That'll be... A <laughs> That's right. It, and it's actually going to take me less time to get there than it did to Ottawa, actually. I mean, I could even drive if yeah. I had to. I mean, that's that's the way to go. Exactly. Right, so uh, the next topic we had is Fetch, uh, which is the little downloader tool. It's kind of like WGET, but mm -hmm. it's not meant for mirroring. It's just meant for downloading stuff. Uh, it's had SSL support for a long time, but it never actually verified that the certificate was a properly signed certificate because FreeBSD doesn't actually distribute... Uh, a certificate bundle because the security officer doesn't want to be responsible for that. You know, we've right. always see it's the same reason why OpenSSL doesn't distribute one in the first place. Uh, you know, nobody wants mm -hmm. to be responsible for deciding what certificate authorities are valid, right? Uh, you could just decide to trust whoever Microsoft trusts, but that seems like a really bad idea and we get you flamed on a mailing list. Yeah. Not the way <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know, we end up with these problems like we saw, I think it was uh, the registrar from turkey was being pressured by the turkish government to issue fake certificates and so you had all these problems uh so anyway now uh fetch and libfetch which is the library that lets you use it inside another app which is what uh package ng uses to download stuff uh they now have support for ssl certificate verification uh you just have to provide a certificate bundle and the, the one from firefox is in the ports tree under security root sure. cannss because it's actually, the package name is left over from when it was Netscape, but it's, you know. No, that's, that's something we ship out of box exactly. on ours because it's, uh, it's just necessary in this day and yeah. age. Uh, so this way, when you download from an HTTPS site, you can actually verify the certificate and make sure it's not a man-in-the-middle attack, uh, which can be important mm -hmm. if you're using PackageNG and you want to make sure you can trust the packages or whatever else you happen to be doing with Fetch. Uh, sure. Currently, Fetch is still missing... Uh, 
SNI, server name indication support, uh, which what is what lets you do uh, virtual hosting under SSL. Uh, you know, the common wisdom has always been that you needed one IP address for every SSL site because the certificate exchange happens before HTTP can send the host header to say which site you're asking for. So OpenSSL mm-hmm. uh, and the SSL protocol in general added SNI, where as part of the SSL handshake, you include the host name of the machine you're trying to connect to. And that allows the server to decide which certificate to send you. So you can actually have multiple SSL sites on one IP address. Uh, but Fetch currently doesn't send that host header. Uh, there's a patch to do it, but it's from before this big patch. So, you know, it needs some cleanup. Uh, Has anybody uh, stepped up to do that yet? No. That you know of? <laughs> I had a URL for the patch somewhere. I must have misplaced it. But, uh, yeah, it'd be nice if somebody would like to do that. They should take a look at it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That would have benefited exactly. everyone. Because, uh, again, that if you want to have a package ng repo and you're, you know, you don't want to dedicate an IP address just to a package ng repo. Because uh, mm-hmm. you want to, uh, basically, for the scale engine CDN to support SSL for the pa- uh, PCBSD package ng repo, it would be much easier if SNI was supported because we don't have a lot of IP addresses and needing one on each of 80 servers would really put a drain on our resources. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard to get a hold of that many, yes. especially nowadays. People are rational. Like, especially in Europe. They're, they get pretty nasty and they're like, do you really need an SSL certificate for that? <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So having server name indication uh, as part of the fetch would allow us to do virtual hosting on the PCBSD's uh, package ng repo so we could have SSL on that. I'm not sure that's sure. really needed, but I'm sure lots of paranoid people would prefer it. Yeah, it would, it yes. would be helpful. You know, just, it's another just nice for to those have. who want to know, we, we do sign the packages in yes. addition, so it's not like they're coming from a completely untrusted yes. source with no verification. Yes, uh, it's one of the things that actually makes the uh, package ng repos a little harder to mirror is the fact that all the signing mm-hmm. happens with that uh, digest.txz file. And so mm-hmm. it has to be exactly in sync with the package files, otherwise the sig- signatures fail. And oh, that that was what prompted us to switch over to to scale engine yeah. initially. I mean, we had all our mirrors across the world, and you have five in sync with last week's packages, three in sync with this week's, yeah. and then you know ten more that are three weeks old. And it was just a exactly, and then trying to to get it all sorted out. The other problem, obviously, was you know sometimes it would take a mirror. You know, you were saying your server was maxed out on the bandwidth it could upload all the oh, time yeah. for like three weeks after each update, and you wanted to update every two weeks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We had a, a small math problem yeah. there. That wasn't going to happen. <laughs> you should see what the graph looks like on that machine. Uh, it keeps spiking to 500 megabits per second of upload. Oh, fantastic. That's just the R-Sync that. mirror. Oh, yes. man. This is like a lot more mirrors than I thought when I said I would do that. Mm-hmm. And you wonder why our poor single Yeah, with the 100 megabit connection, couldn't do it. Yeah. I, I bet you uh, ISC where we had that hosted is so glad it's out there now. They're like, hey, all our bandwidth is yeah. back. What happened? <clears throat> yeah, so uh, the next story is the FreeBSD Foundation semi-annual newsletter. Uh, you know, the FreeBSD Foundation after last year where uh, you remember a lot of people saw the Slashdot story where they were talking about how FreeBSD was dying because they didn't, hadn't met their uh, donation goal yet and then we mm-hmm. blew through it by like $250,000. <laughs> Well, you know, those those kind of things happen, just like people, BSD is dying, and then you get small companies like Netflix announce that they're switching. Yeah, and that 30% of the internet yeah. is going to be powered by FreeBSD now. 
Yeah, you know, just small figures. Yeah. No, you shouldn't yeah. worry about that. Uh, well, <laughs> in particular, the FreeBSD Foundation always got almost all of its fundraising done at the very end of the year, because that was end of year. That's when people have the money. They find out they have money left over they could donate. Well, for tax that's, purposes, yeah. if you're a business in the U.S., that's, that's the time exactly. to do it. Uh, but this year, they've decided to run a fundraiser in the spring and in the fall as well to try to even it out a little bit. Because uh, that would make their job easier for funding projects. Because they'll know how you know they don't have to wait until next year to know how much money they're going to have to fund the next project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they have started doing the semi-annual newsletter instead of an annual one, so that they can keep people more up to date. And now things are happening faster than they have in the past as well. Yeah, we're seeing them push more and more projects yep. now, and and hire more and more developers to to tackle big chunks of uh, free BSD that need attention. Yeah. So it's really good that, uh, that they'll be able to spread this out over a year and it's not like all happening in January. Yeah. Right and uh, it also was the 20th anniversary of FreeBSD. So they uh, took that opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, where we should go from here and a retrospective mm-hmm. a little bit of how we've come along in the last 20 years. But uh, now the foundation doesn't actually get to decide what's going to happen in the project. But, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they provided some guidance on what they think are some of the key areas they should be focused on. And I think they've got it. And they they accept proposals, too. So if there's a great idea, something that you think uh, would be useful to a bunch of folks in the FreeBSD community, you can submit it to them, see if if they're interested. Uh, But some of the basic goals they set out was to unify the user experience, uh, Mm -hmm. which is one of the things that FreeBSD has always been better at. uh, Because all the tools are maintained in one repo and it's all one operating system, you're not pulling a lot of tools from a bunch of different places. It meant that the tools work together better and the syntax mm-hmm. was usually more common. And even just the man pages has that little section at the bottom where it tells you about related tools, which helped me numerous times. Well, it's just really helpful to know that when I run the ZFS command, it's using the same version that's in the kernel and things are just going to work properly. Right. Uh, you know, it's, the benefit of having a consistent world and kernel yeah. environment. Uh, but mostly, I think what they were talking about was even just consistency between different parts of the world. And they said, specifically, mm-hmm. ensure that knowledge gain mastering one task in FreeBSD translates into the next task. Uh, you know, so when you learn how to do something, the same concepts usually apply somewhere else, right? That was one of the things that drew me to FreeBSD was the consistency of the file hierarchy. The fact that Files have a certain place, and they always go there, and they never go somewhere else. So when I'm looking for the config file for something I just installed, it's always user local etc and either, you know, appname.conf or appname directory with a bunch of files in it. And it's always there, and it's always exactly how I expect it to do. And, you know, when I uninstall a package, the config file gets left behind. So when I install the newer version, it's still there. But there's Mm -hmm. the unmodified original distributor version that's updated so I can do my diff and make sure that my config gets any new parameters. And <clears throat> yeah, and it's just, it's so helpful having that consistently released from yep. release. You know, it's not something I have to, you know, coming from somebody working on a desktop, if I had to redo that every time we rolled a release or, oh no, they changed this command or this comp file. I mean, that just too much time wasted chasing uh chasing my tail yeah i remember uh the one that caused a lot of trouble was a friend of mine had a debian server and he was using a control panel called uh direct admin which is the one i use because it actually works on FreeBSD. Uh, it's like a web hosting shared web hosting control panel and debian decided one day on the not 
I don't know what their middle between development and, and release tree is. I don't know. They have weird names. Anyway, they decided to change one of the flags of CH Pass uh, so that it did something different than it did before. <laughs> and it. I can't imagine that would cost. And so it broke this control panel program. <laughs> and it just made a, a, a mess. And I was just like, they just did that in the middle with like not across the major release just as a, a routine update to the command <laughs> i'm glad that uh, freebsd doesn't do it yeah. as much i mean we have shell scripts i mean i i mentioned earlier before we started the show that we built a lot of our framework off of the old frisbee yeah. scripts and believe it or not those are what eight ten years Something old like now and a lot of those exactly still work. <laughs> like i can still use major portions of that and they're just just consistent even on 9 yeah. and 10. Well, and if you read some of the man pages for some of the older commands from the uh, like original Unix stuff, they're like, here's this flag minus capital U. It doesn't do anything, but it's here so a script left over from then still works. Mm-hmm. And you have no idea how helpful it <laughs> exactly. is. Exactly. I mean, maybe you guys do. If you're sysadmins and you have your little collection of scripts that you use for yeah. everything, I mean, not having to go and rewrite those every year is just so much uh, safe yeah. time. Uh, so yeah, the other point they had for unifying the user experience is if we do pay attention to consistency, not only will FreeBSD be easier to use, but it'll be easier to learn. And I think that's one of the big things uh, for me compared to Linux is that when I learn something, I don't, it doesn't become in useless later. It, that mm -hmm. knowledge is useful forever now. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And it's not that things won't change over time or be improved, but we just want to keep the user experience the yeah. same or at least similar so there's not a huge learning curve every time somebody drops a new tool. Exactly. Uh, and the other thing they said was uh, focusing on design for both human use and programmatic use. You know, a lot of people are starting to use FreeBSD as embedded devices and stuff. And so tools to make that easier are great. And, you know, I'm sure for you, tools that automate stuff so that you can do it from a uh, a graphical interface are also very helpful. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, we also need them to be usable by humans. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just about every GUI we have, there's some kind of shell or backend yep. behind it that, that's just running standard FreeBSD commands, which makes it really help uh, easy as well if you want to go learn how these yes, things and work. You can just fire up a script. You know, programmatic ways to edit rc.conf, like Devintesky sysrc, mm -hmm. are very helpful because in the past, 200 FreeBSD machines was considered a very large deployment of FreeBSD machines. Now, with high-density servers, uh, blade servers, virtualization in the cloud, you can have 200 servers in one rack <laughs> with, by the sure. time you count sure. virtualization and everything. Oh, yeah. You fire up your 10,000 jails. It's like, oh, yeah. man, I can administrate all these things. Yeah, a simple way to administer all those would be very helpful. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. Also, the tools we provide for status reporting, configuration, and control don't always scale to that same level, right? They're mostly meant for, you know, one developer on his laptop, not for a sysman right. trying to deal with 200 of these machines, right? Like those, um, mm -hmm. you know, when I had three machines, getting those nightly emails with the list of any file that suddenly gained uh, set UID was useful. With 80 machines, mm -hmm. it's not very useful. <laughs> it's just yeah. 200 emails a day I don't need. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you see more more daemons and stuff appearing that that's helping us manage that now as well. Because they said there's just too much spam that I got to delete and I'm going to mess something exactly. important. Uh, and so they said, yeah, the FreeBSD of tomorrow needs to give programmability and uh, human interaction equal weight in its requirements when it's adding new features and building things. Mm -hmm. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. And the another one that they 
that kind of fits with what we're doing right now is embracing new ways to document FreeBSD. Uh, you know, in the handbook, they're moving towards having these little getting started sections. The handbook is can be kind of a dry read sometimes. And so starting each chapter with just the basics of how to get something off the ground mm-hmm. and then digging in how to, you know, set the advanced options, you know. Yeah, advanced usage or what's happening behind the scenes. A lot of times I just want to know the three commands I need to type. to make Exactly. Like when I was building <laughs> the... Um, uh, the handbook article I'm working on for ZFS, I made the mistake of starting it with a giant table of definitions of what all the words in ZFS mean. <laughs> it's like, let's oh, put wow. that at the bottom. <laughs> and first, yeah, yeah. be like, here's how you create your pool with two disks. <laughs> and then uh, we'll get into, here's how the, all the different types of pools you could create and how many disks you should use. And then, you know, that way, yeah, yeah. When, you just oh, want, when you just Google for, how do I create my Z pool, the answer is right there mm-hmm. at the top. And then you can dig in if you yep. need to. And it makes the sure. documentation that much more useful. Yeah, because the number of people doing those advanced things can be much smaller. A lot of guys are just like, I just want to turn on yeah. compression. How do I, how do exactly. I do that? Exactly. Instead of having to wade through a list of, here's all the possible options with compression buried in the middle somewhere. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, remember to add caveats like LZ4 compression, only in 9.2 or 8.4 or higher. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, but they also mentioned uh, linking to some external how-tos and other documentation, although there's some risk mm-hmm. in that of that eventually isn't there anymore. Uh, especially people with sure. blogs tend to every once in a while throw the blog away and make a new one. <laughs> uh, yeah, if we could capture that a little better. Yeah, so nice. trying to bring yeah. some uh, to get the people that write those uh, how-tos to actually you know, want to maybe join the docs com- uh, group and actually just have them be put into... Uh, as articles in not the handbook, but in the FreeBSD documentation tree, uh, you know, as I'd like to see them in, in the wiki. Maybe that would be a good place we could snapshot it and say, yeah, even even there as well. Step, this is what it uh, is. You know, the BSD talk just did an interview with a bunch of people from uh, the documentation committee, and they were talking about, you know, the FreeBSD documentation is mostly written in DocBook or Mandoc and so on. But if you have something, you can just send us plain text, and we'll take care of formatting it for you. You, you don't have mm-hmm. to go and learn DocVoc to help. Uh, so, you know, if you have stuff, you can just send it to the FreeBSD-Doc mailing list and, uh, sure. you know, that way... They'll do the exactly. messy work to get it up there for you. We just need And the then content. somebody else will translate it for you and everything. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, the content is the hard part. Sure. And yeah, we need to get uh, Drew Levine on here. Yes, at some point uh, she's busy writing sure more documentation this. at the moment. <laughs> Of course. Because <laughs> on top of being a big committer for uh, the FreeBSD doc project, she writes all the docs for FreeNAS and PCBSD, right? Yep, yep, she does. So she's yeah. very busy. Uh, and then they also said upgrading the cross-referencing and search tools that are built into FreeBSD. Because currently, uh, you have to use Google to find anything on FreeBSD.org. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and, and solving that problem poses a lot of difficulty, but at the same time would be very helpful. It's, it's well worth yeah. doing, though, being able to go to one place and get all your information. Yeah. Uh, but some good news uh, about the spring fundraising campaign. Uh, between April 17th and May 31st, uh, the FreeBSD Foundation raised a total of $219,806. Uh, and that came from wow. 12 companies and 365 individual donors. Uh, whereas in the same period last year, they raised only $23,000 from two companies and 53 people. Because you know BSD yes. is dying. Uh, yes. <laughs> one of the big things there, though, is the number of individual donors. 
Uh, to maintain its tax-exempt mm-hmm. uh, status from the IRS, the FreeBSD Foundation needs to prove that it's of public interest, not only interest to those 12 companies that donated the bulk of the money. Uh, so having individual people donate even just $5 actually makes a big difference. And the foundation wants more of that and doesn't necessarily need as many of the big companies. So what is that, like half a cup of Starbucks? Exactly. I mean, come on, guys. You, you can definitely yep. help out. Exactly. That's why while Scale Engine donates, I also donate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to give you an idea of what those funds are used for, uh, funds donated to the FreeBSD Foundation have funded the following projects just recently. Uh, more Capsicum Security Component Framework. Now Capsicum is in everything now, even like DH Client. Uh, so if somebody finds an exploit for DH Client and injects that into the DHCP answer that you get, uh, it won't compromise your machine. Because you know, DH mm-hmm. Client needs root to be able to set your... IP address on the interface and so on, but and to raw write to the socket, but there's other tasks where it doesn't need root, and this Capsicum lets it separate those two capabilities. I still have crazy dreams about seeing Capsicum all throughout the desktop yep. and system at some point. Just think of the security. Benefits. Well, after seeing um, PJD's talk at uh, BSD CAN about the ZFS security appliance that you put between your network and your contractors to record everything, and almost every game that runs on there is capsicum so that you can't compromise the security appliance because that would defeat the point of the security appliance. Sure. Uh, transparent super pages support for FreeBSD on ARM uh, with devices like the Raspberry Pi and the BeagleBone and every other ARM device. Uh, mm-hmm. All this stuff to make memory access faster is going to be a big deal. And at the same time, it's the... Vendors that want to build embedded versions of FreeBSD, uh, this is especially important to them. I think uh, for IPv6 even, we had a project a couple years back where uh, we worked with Bjorn yeah. and rolled an actual uh, IPv6 only. Yes, that was, uh, I remember that was system. an interesting project. It was like, how much stuff in FreeBSD relies on IPv4? And if we just disable IPv4 mm-hmm. and have a 6 only kernel, how much stuff breaks? And sure. doing that years ago so that Everything from then on doesn't rely on V4 was important because that means we won't have to wait the three years it took for all that all those changes to trickle through once V4 actually needs to be turned off. Yeah, we we know the operating system is not lying to us now and secretly using V4 in the background for things yeah. that shouldn't be. We can we can truly switch to IPv6. Yeah, and uh, the same things been happening with other projects. Uh, you know, with importing Clang, how many hidden dependencies on GCC where they're actually scattered all over the place and as they remove those and uh you know there's other things in the future where apps might assume that your dns resolver library is bind when you've switched to something else Mm -hmm. Uh, but the next thing on the list is a huge thing that a lot of people want it's a native in kernel iSCSI stack uh, so currently, oh, yes, uh, the FreeBSD kernel has uh, an iSCSI initiator, so a client built in, uh, although it needs some work. Uh, but this would be adding an, a native iSCSI server, so that'd be much faster than the user land one that you can have now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a lot of usage if you're running, like, say, a big NAS box. Yeah. And also, on the client side, it means, you know, you could have diskless clients running off that NAS box. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's actually funny, at my house here, 
the hard drive in my computer is slower than accessing uh, my ZFS array over my gigabit network. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> and so at one point I was like, that hard drive's not going to last much longer. I have an SSD for the OS, and then that hard drive has all my games and stuff on it. Might I be better off creating a ZVol and iSCSI mounting that in Windows and just having that hard drive actually not exist in my computer but be over the network? <laughs> That's a, almost too crazy of an idea. It may actually work. That's yeah, and then cool. now with network cards getting the iSCSI initiators built into them, you can boot from a disk off iSCSI. So you don't need any disk at all. So you hear that? Your Windows box is just a, a file with some data on it on your FreeBSD. Exactly. Box. Your Windows system can be on top of ZFS. That, That's, there we go. And you can snapshot yes, it. How exactly. about that? Uh, another project that was really interesting to me was the five new TCB congestion control algorithms. Uh, so now, instead of just using the default one, there's a pluggable system where there are kernel modules, you load them up, and you can use a sysctl to switch between them on a live system. So you don't even have to reboot. Uh, this allowed me to do a bunch of tests between the five and decide which ones work best in different use cases. In particular, my use case was streaming or uh, like sending large video files from Germany to Toronto or Toronto to Germany, which is across the Atlantic Ocean, which means, well, both machines on both ends have at least a gigabit of, of capacity. The Latency is over 100 milliseconds, so bandwidth delay product can really kick in and murder you there. And so mm -hmm. uh, I could choose between either delay-based uh, congestion control or loss-based. So they look at whether, you know, if the packet's all of a sudden going slower than it was before, that means the line's too busy, or is it when a packet gets dropped, that means the line's too busy. So they can kind of deal with buffer bloat that way, right? If because with buffer bloat, the packet doesn't get dropped, it just gets delayed. And so you can have it decide which factors mean that the, the link is too busy and adjust your TCP speed that way. Oh, that's pretty cool. Is that something that's in? Uh, yes, that was right uh, been in since 9.0. Oh, uh, and so I use uh, HTCP uh, instead of the standard new Reno, and I get much better speeds transatlantically that way. And then the next one is actually pretty interesting as well. Do you know much about it? No, the direct map I am actually not. Uh, this curious. one is from Netflix, or partly inspired by Netflix. And it means yeah. uh, instead of having to copy the data in memory to use it in its second place, you can just directly map it to where it already was. And so you can basically save yourself the yeah copy. so when you're dealing with a netflix box which has two or four 10 gigabit network cards and you're trying to saturate all of those not having to wait for data to get copied from one place in ram to a second place in ram before you can send it out over the neck yeah, means you, you know yeah you're going to save a lot of time you'll be able to saturate those cards yeah so that, you know eliminating every bottleneck you can so that you can actually be pumping out 40 gigabits a second sure which, yeah, you know, somebody like Netflix definitely Yes, because it do. means they need fewer machines. Mm-hmm. And then one that people have been asking for for quite some time, I'm sure PCBSD in particular has got lots of complaints about oh, this. Yes. Yes, the UEFI boot yep. environment support. So that was a project the foundation uh, has funded as well. And uh, still looking forward to, to seeing that implemented here on a PCBSD side. Yeah, because uh, I know on my laptop, uh, if I don't have 
UEFI enabled, Windows will not boot off a GPT formatted disk. Nope. So I have, my kernel, uh, my uh, BIOS luckily lets me set a hybrid option where it says try uh, UEFI and then fall back to legacy. So I have Windows on a GPT formatted disk that boots with EUFI. And then I have an SSD mm -hmm. instead of a CD-ROM drive uh, in the laptop that's GPT formatted but boots the old-fashioned BIOS way. And that's where PCBSD lives. Sure. And, you know, this is one of those things that you're lucky your laptop exactly. has a lot don't. There's enough out there that don't and, and won't going forward that uh, having the native support is going to be good. Um, have you heard anything? Is this Does this include work on the side? Uh, it's going to be get the... Shim, they're going to use the same shim loader that Linux uses, which is signed by Microsoft. Oh, okay. Uh, that you way go. you don't have to manually add a key to your BIOS in order for it to work. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah, except for if we have to get the shim changed and Microsoft decides to take their time signing it. But <laughs> uh, it's not well, great, but <laughs> it's it's a start, right? Uh, so sure. another project they founded that I heard quite a bit about in, at uh, AJBSDCon was uh, FreeBSD ported to work on the Afika MX smartbooks which are these uh, ARM-based laptops, kind of like a Chromebook, but different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the funny thing about ARM is I forget one of the last conferences I was at, I, we pulled out a little Raspberry Pi with yep. BSD on it. I couldn't believe how many people came up and were like, oh, I had no idea BSD was capable of running on exactly. ARM. Like, yeah, just all sorts of folks. This was a shock to them. But no, it's, it's, it does this on a number of systems yeah. now. Uh, and then another interesting one is the NAND flash file system and storage stack. So typically with an SSD, there's a chip called a flash translation layer that's making the, all the flash memory appear as if it is a regular spinning hard drive, right? And so that firmware is making all the decisions without consulting you. Uh, the idea with this NAND flash file system is you would talk to the flash chips directly. So it wouldn't be an SSD device. This would be, you know, just a card full of NAND flash that doesn't have any logic in it. And sure. this way you have control over how it's being written and, and what type of algorithm you want to do for dealing with fragmentation or whatever. And it also means that instead of having, needing a firmware update from the manufacturer to change how it works, you would just change your NAND flash driver. So this, this involves would, yeah, a log-structured file system to go on it and the, just the underlying drivers to actually talk directly to the flash chips. And this could give you a lot more control over the flash and how it's used whether you want to you know bias towards longevity or bias towards just speed i don't care if i burn out the nand mm -hmm. flash or you know if you want some area of both on the same drive or something it looks like a really interesting yeah, project cool i imagine you could plug that into zfs maybe tune how the copy on right yeah, works as well i Is imagine the idea? and you know okay give you all kinds of control however you want to use it if you do it as a, a zill or a, or l2 arc and everything mm -hmm. uh, one of the other big things that the uh, freebsd foundation does is sponsor a number of the bsd focused conferences including bsd can which we were both at eurobsd con which we're both going to <laughs> asia bsd con sure. again uh the bsd at. day vbsd con and a bunch of other ones and also the vendor summit and developer summits that happen at some of these conferences uh you know yeah, there's a lot of uh, developers that they sponsor. To bring well, that's out yeah. There uh, to, not uh, every developer who works for FreeBSD as a volunteer can afford to fly to Malta. But sure, you know, there's a developer summit there where a lot of important decisions are going to be made, and a lot of important patches will happen. Uh, it was interesting to watch 
um, the Cambridge Dev Summit and the number of, you know, the spike in commits that happened, especially really, really big commits. People are saving these yeah. to get them, you know, have other people look at them and verify it in person and collaborate and solve the problem. And then all these really important commits happened inside that one weekend. You know, IRC is only so good, but I mean, if you can get these guys in a room, yeah. you know, lock the doors, give them a couple of laptops, magic starts it's to happen. It's really something to just, just come out. sitting across the room and watching it is really entertaining. It is. It's a lot of yep. fun. And they'll, they'll make a big decision and, okay, that's settled. Let's yep. move on. And so the foundation helps cover the cost of getting some of the developers there since not everyone, you know, works for a company that's going to pay them to do it and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yes, again, we stressed that the FreeBSD Foundation needs your donation, even if it's only $5, just to express the fact that you are supporting FreeBSD. Got to keep their uh, 501c3 uh, yes. status, right? Because unlike the Xorg Foundation, they actually do their taxes. <laughs> <laughs> we, we try and keep the IRS yes. happy, right? So we've mentioned quite a few conferences, but we have a quick rundown of uh, ones that are coming up in our little The Place to BSD segment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the lamest segment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, Ohio Linux Fest is September 13th to 15th in uh, Ohio. Uh, it's a very BSD-friendly uh, thing. They've always had BSD stuff there. And this year, the keynote is actually given by Kirk McCusick, uh, who's one of the like founding fathers of BSD. Oh, man, I'm a little disappointed I'm going to yes. miss that one this year, but that, that sounds exciting. Yes, I think there's at least three different BSD-focused talks there, in addition to some other stuff. Mm-hmm. And the BSD certification will be there uh, on the 15th. So if you want to pay, I forget how much it is, I think it's 100 and twenty dollars yeah you have to register and pay on their website ahead of time but uh you can get your bsd certification which lasts five years i have mine (laughs) and of course uh if you're not familiar with how that works you're allowed to renew it as well if you can prove that you've stayed active in the community or worked on bsd so they're not going to nickel and dime exactly and uh, they have all the study materials free on their website uh so Mm -hmm. you can definitely take a look at that uh and then uh linux con is september 16th through 18th <laughs> yep so uh drew levine and uh, me will actually be out at that one we'll be manning the freebsd booth and there's a lot of talks of this one including a number of them which might be interesting to bsd users including some of the, the zfs stuff that uh, we're cooperating with linux yep. on since uh solaris took it back or us uh, sun i guess oracle oracle now just evil yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> So moving forward on ZFS, where we go from yep. there. Looking forward to that. And then the big one will be EuroBSDCon, which is September 26th through 29th in Malta. Uh, it's a nice exotic location, but uh, there'll be tutorials and the Dev Summit on the 26th and 27th, uh, followed by two days of talks where there'll be 43 hour-long talks about various subjects, uh, running three at a time concurrently for the whole two days. Uh, yeah, for some reason, a lot of people wanted to go to this one. Yes, uh, it, the interesting thing was to see a lot of people who haven't come out to the conferences recently all of a sudden showing up. So, like, oh, Malta. Yeah, the number of big names uh, is quite impressive. Uh, and the keynote will be by Theo Durat of the OpenBSD project about solving the 2038 time problem. So we don't have another Y2K oh, problem. Cool. Yeah, Theo's always fun yes. to listen to. I enjoy going to his yeah. talks. And uh, you have one as well, right? Yep, I'll be giving and one there, too, on uh, how we do uh, network deployment, pixie booting, and, and installation. Yeah, I'm doing one on uh, denial of service mitigation with DNS uh, and some of the cool oh, things cool. we've done with that. 
And uh, coming up after this on the show, we have an uh, interview with Peter Hessler. He's also giving a talk about uh, the BGP spam project that he's working on, uh, which is what our interview with him is about. Uh, his talk is directly after mine on the Sunday. <laughs> uh, so you've missed the early bird special pricing. Uh, that ended uh, Sunday, I think. So if you want to go to your BSDCon, you better hurry up. <laughs> And get registered. Yeah, and if you if you can get there, you know, if you know somebody who's a developer, let them sponsor yep. you. Really go to the Dev Summit if you can. There's a lot of good stuff that yes. happens there. It's uh, my first one was in Ottawa, and uh, it was great. And uh, I tried very hard to get myself invited, and I did. So I'm actually going to be talking about uh, in the ports uh, working group talking about how I built a CDN to shoot package NG packages for this project called PCBSD. Have you ever heard of it? Oh, okay. Yeah, I might have to go listen in on that. Might, might be of some interest. <laughs> yes, it's like, so, yeah, I know it works, but how does it work? Yeah, yeah. It's just black magic yeah. to me. I mean, I go somewhere and a package yeah. is there. That's all I know. Uh, so, yeah, now uh, we're going to take a short break, and uh, we have the interview we recorded with Peter Hessler last week. Joining us this week, we have Peter Hessler of the OpenBSD project and the developer of BGP SpamD. Hello, Peter. Hello, Alan. Thanks for coming on the show. Yes, thanks for having thanks. me. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your previous contributions to OpenBSD? Sure. Um, so I am originally from San Francisco, California, uh, but I moved to Europe a little bit over five years ago, actually the anniversary was last weekend and uh spent most of that time in germany and then now i am in zurich switzerland uh working for a uh free online online classified website yeah and um so that's mostly what i do uh business wise and then for openbsd um i've been a user since 2000 and i've been a developer since 2008 um, originally, I started off uh, in ports, so working on bringing third-party software into OpenBSD, uh, fixing whatever uh, compiled problems that we may have, any performance issues that we may have, uh, mostly in games. Um, the, the actual port that got me the account was a port of the old Mac game Marathon, mm. which uh, may be familiar to some people because... Uh, Halo is the sequel to this. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Yes, it was... Um, yeah. So, yeah. Marathon was the reason why Microsoft bought Bungie, the game developer, and said, pretty please make us a video game. And that was Halo. Um, yeah, so uh, I did that. And then uh, when I moved to Germany, I started working for Vantronics, which was an OpenBSD-based uh, firewall and router mm -hmm. vendor. And so I did a lot of the internal support. I did a lot of the, the customer support, uh, internal support, and then um, started doing some actual network development for that. Um, I was one of the first people to use the OpenBSD R domains, uh, different routing domains, similar to the Cisco VRF framework. And um, I discovered a lot of interesting problems with it, and uh, which I talked about uh, at last year's EuroBSDCon, and um, had experience running possibly the world's largest uh, OpenBSD R domains installation, which was when I left the company was around uh, 50 R domains, wow. I believe. 
Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about what our domains are and what they use for? Um, yeah, so traditionally in a Unix system, you have a single uh, routing mm -hmm. table. And so the routing table is the pa uh, a network packet comes in, and if it's not for the local machine and it's going to be forwarded on for like on routers or firewalls, then the uh, then the kernel does a lookup of where should I send this in the routing table. Right. Um, this is all well and good, but it runs into some problems on some very specific types of scales. So like if you're an ISP and you have a lot of customer networks that all connect to you, the problem there is that everybody uses 10 slash 8 for their internal network. Yep. Everybody uses 192.168.0. And you cannot have conflicting IP addresses on on network. Right. They have to be unique. What routing domains does is that you can make multiple copies or multiple instances of a routing table. So that way, a packet that arrives on you know VLAN 100 will be in a completely different routing table than a packet coming in on VLAN 101. And then you can route them appropriately. Um, in OpenBSD, this is done basically in two ways. One is at the normal uh, packet layer, or, or rather the, the normal network stack layer, and at the routing layer. And that is, and it keeps the, the packets uh, completely separate from each right. other. Um, it's done, you, you mark it either on the interface or on the process. So like you can say, I want the web server to only run in routing domain four, for example. Um, and this way you can have uh, separation. But then oftentimes you need to be able to move a packet in or out of a routing domain. So then you need to use PF for that. And so PF can take and steal packets, move them around, do all the standard firewalling stuff. Uh, FreeBSD has something similar called FIBs, uh, Forward Information Bases, which is just another word for routing table. Uh, although the number is it's more limited. Pretty, it's pretty similar. Um, uh, I haven't looked at it in I don't huge know that detail. anybody uses it quite to the scale that of the routing domains in OpenBSD. And oh, okay. okay. Uh, like um, I believe before, I think the most you could have was eight yeah. until recently as well. <laughs> Oh, wow. I think we have a limit of 1024. Right. I can't remember if that was bumped or not. Uh, I think it was. Uh, but it's just a simple compile. Right. Or it's just a, a simple you know, define that you just change and then recompile your kernel in a couple tools and no problem. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Uh, so anyway, yeah. about what we actually have you on to interview about. <laughs> uh, so BGP SpamD, could you tell us a little bit about what it is? Sure. Um, so to give a little bit of background information, uh, so SpamD is a tool that does implements gray listing. Mm -hmm. And gray listing is a way to tell a, uh, is basically a way to try and force email servers to play nice. Right. Generally, like so, generally what it is, is when an email comes yeah. in, you say temporary failure, try again in a few minutes and spammers don't bother retrying. Exactly, exactly. This causes some problems, though, because you have um, one group of email servers who just never retry again. You also have uh, another problem with um, companies like Google who have 
thousands upon thousands of outgoing outgoing email servers, and it's always tried from a different IP address. Mm. So like I've I've looked at my logs and I've seen Google try, you know, every every five to ten minutes, you know, on a on a reasonable basis on a reasonable time mm-hmm. basis, um, try to deliver an email to me for eight hours because they kept trying from a different IP. And so they never over, they got, never got on the gray list. Exact. Ex- well, they would enter the gray list, but they would never be whitelisted right. because in order to be whitelisted, you have to send it right. twice. The other thing that Spamd does is so you so you have the gray lists, and then Spamd also has support for a blacklist, which is somebody has been naughty, naughty, naughty. and naughty is kind of a n- ambiguous subjective. term. It's just yeah, exactly. It's very subjective. Um, in my in in BGP SpamD, we have a very specific meaning for what's naughty and what gets added to the blacklist, but that's not important for now. Right. But so you have a blacklist, you can download it from from a website. That's very common. Um, OpenBSD provides one on the uh, on www.openbsd.org directly, and it's um, it's pre-configured in the spamd.conf. So all you have to do is just enable SpamD, and then it just update updates every hour. Uh, this blacklist, and so what the blacklist does is when BGP, or I'm sorry, when SpamD sees the IP address in the blacklist, it just says, "Oh, fail. I'm not going to talk right. to you," and just does this for uh, until it gets removed. In uh, normally, it's 24 hours, and then SpamD also has a whitelist, which is if you're on the whitelist, we won't graylist you right. at all. Except we your mail, always. We trust. You. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, SpamD is very, very simplistic. It only looks at network traffic, and it only looks at this specific network behavior. It has nothing to do about the contents. It doesn't care at all. So for uh, SpamD is a great as the first line of defense uh, for, your, for your email. It's not intended to be a full replacement. You still need to do... Something like Spam Assassin for content filtering. But by putting yeah, SpamD exactly. in front of Spam Assassin, you're not wasting CPU time processing stuff you already know is spam because it's coming from a spam source. Exactly, exactly. Like I've heard stories where people have gone from having uh, 15 very large to you commercial anti-spam devices, which were being flooded and overloaded and just basically falling falling over. Uh, SpamD was put in front of this. And then they were able to shut down eight of them because the CPU load was so low on the rest of them. Yeah. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned, uh, SpamD deals with blacklists, and it downloads them from a website. The problem with this is that everybody downloads it at the top of the right. hour. So at 58 minutes, the web server is doing nothing. At 59 minutes, the web server is doing nothing. At 00... zero it's screaming in pain because everybody is trying to download the same yep. list at the same time. Yeah, and even if you had a cache like Varnish in front of it, when everybody's coming at exactly the same time, it still doesn't help. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's Okay, maybe the disk isn't screaming, but it's the network yep. pipe that's screaming. Maybe it's the CPU because it still has to do all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, and you know, depending on what your web server is, it's you know, if you're using Apache, you can end up with all these threads trying to, you know, you're getting to max clients. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, and then it just simply takes time because the system is overloaded. And so at one minute, things are starting to slow down. At two minutes, everything's quiet again. And then nothing happens. Yeah. But then 
what happens if somebody gets added to the blacklist at two minutes after the hour? Well, they have 58 minutes to spam to, the uh, hell out of you. To spam until they get added to the blacklist. Yeah. So that's where, and then, so that's the, the first primary method that most people use for distributing a blacklist. Um, and that's just the method that SpamD supports. The other traditional method is to do a real-time DNS lookup. Uh, for example, against Spamhouse. Yeah. The problem here, though, is that the speed of email delivery is now dependent on an external third party yes. that you have no control or over. Or especially when you're combining multiple of these lists, right? If you're using Spamhouse yes. and somebody else, especially if you're doing reputation-based, you want to consider a bunch of these lists, and then only if it's on more than one of them do I want to block it. And Right, exactly. You know, even with DNS, sometimes latency can be 100 milliseconds or more. Exactly. And so you have to deal with the slowest provider there. And then, um, and also you have instances like when Spamhouse was, was DDoSed off yes. the internet. Then what happens to your email? It stalls. Depending and, on, yeah. at, if you're lucky, it's Right. If, if you're lucky, your if you're, DNS. If you're really unlucky, it just freaks out and just starts dropping all, the, all your yeah. emails because it can't handle it. Yeah. Or because, yeah, like if your DNS resolver has a reasonable timeout of like four seconds or something, then after mm -hmm. pausing for four seconds, it lets the email continue. Or sometimes it'll just hang forever. And either way, if your volume of right. incoming emails per second is high enough, it just starts to back up until you hit max clients again. Exactly, and then you have the standard issues of spam house likes to shake people down for money, mm -hmm. and um, and then how are people being added to these lists? Yep. You're not really sure is somebody at spam house um, are like why are they choosing these addresses? Mm -hmm. um, there's been a variety of stories going around for a long, long time about uh, people who've been added to these lists when they really shouldn't yep. have. And in, in fact, myself, I was added in like 2002, 2003, like a long, long time ago. My email uh, server was added because somebody else in my slash 24 was. Added. Yeah, I had that same problem in about 2002 as well. It was um, Spews yeah. was the blacklist. Or maybe, it, yeah, maybe it was Spews. Yeah. I can't and remember. They, they liked it. it they they the went people. after sometimes like they would do a who is and just block the entire ISP if any server anywhere in the block it was a source of spam even after it stopped it was a little yeah exactly they were a little yeah like i understand their political motivation is to stop isps from accepting known spammers but that was already kind of dealt with they were yeah it yeah. caused problems <laughs> yeah ex exactly exactly um so yeah so you have you have the two basic methods of of distributing the, the list you have the um you have the email the, the download the or the dns or, or the dns lookups yeah. so what bgp spamd does is it uses the power of bgp basically to distribute these as as lists to your machine so you get the both the feature of it being local so if for some reason you lose connection to my bgp server you still have a copy of the, of the list. Yeah, exactly. You still have a local copy. Um, and all your lookups will be local right. always. 
and then but you also have the benefit of real time right because so bgp is designed for announcing new routes or in this case new blocks of blacklist exactly exactly um and so when a new ip when an ip address is listed every machine in the cluster gets it in currently in around one second nice um and i believe a routing update when it hits the the primary uh bgp uh routing cloud i guess for lack of a better term is uh i believe that takes about 20 seconds to propagate across the entire internet so it's it's remarkably fast um so the way BGP, the way BGP works is that BGP is simply a distribution protocol for networks. For lists of networks, basically. For, for a list of networks, exactly. You have the, the network that you want to announce, and then you have the gateway of where should the, the traffic be sent to. And then you have an optional attribute called communities. And then tr- for traditional routing, communities is used to say only announce this to your customers. Right. Now, uh, this is for downstream like, customers not, only, or this is for peers exactly. only. Exactly. This is, this is for peers only. Do not announce it in Europe. Do not announce it in North America and whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's importantly, it's all site specific. So you can have anything you want on this. Um, luckily, there is a very easy way to list a route of a single IP address. And in the CIDR notation, that's just a slash 32. And so what we do is we have the... So, okay, so um, there's basically three components of this of the system. There is my server that pretty much everyone connects to, both the clients and the servers. Mm-hmm. And then we have the clients, and this is pretty much anybody who wants to. Uh, you can connect. It's free to use. I do not accept any updates from any cust from any clients. Right. Um, so there is no danger of somebody inserting um, inappropriate whitelists or inappropriate blacklists, right. and uh, there's no way to for any of them to change the data that I'm sending around. And then I have the servers, and the servers are uh, trusted people um, that I have a personal contract, well, a personal verbal contract with that they'll play nice and they'll follow the basic rules. Uh, the basic rules for the blacklists are they sent an email to a spam trap email address within the last 24 hours. So that's so that's very trap, conservative, honestly. Yeah, it's very conservative. That's exactly the point. Um, however, this happens to be exactly the same policy that um, my upstreams are following. For their lists, right. um, one of my lists is the University of Alberta, uh, located in Canada. It's their blacklist. Mm. This is also the main blacklist that's listed uh, for OpenBSD. Yeah. So that is their blacklist policy. Um, I am also getting the blacklists from Peter Hanstein, right? Who is the author of the book of PF. Um, he's given a lot of talks about uh, low intensity uh, botnets and and yeah, exactly. And yeah, he. He runs one of those uh, spam traps. Exactly. And so um, I am actually getting his spam trap in my system, and I'm distributing it via BGP. Right. Um, How did he normally distribute that before? Was it a file on a website? Uh, or? 
Yeah, exactly. So both Peter and and your and University of Alberta both distribute um, their blacklists over over web over the websites and just have um, a gzipped file right. that people can download, and that uh, SpamD knows how to deal with itself. Um, so I looked at the numbers just before we started the call, mm -hmm. and right now there are um, one hundred five thousand entries. I, I'm sorry. There's uh, 100,000 entries in my blacklist. Oh, and that's only right. in the last 24 hours? <laughs> exactly. That's, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, um, that's actually pretty normal. Right. Um, it's really humorous. You can actually follow it. There's peaks and valleys on it. And uh, spammers generally work U.S. business hours, I would say. Really? Because I had always found that they worked... U.S. overnight hours because that's when the sysadmins would be sleeping to not actively block the spam until the morning. <laughs> I've noticed there's generally a peak during U.S. Mm. hours. Well, I guess, yeah. Um, yeah. I guess yeah. things have changed over the years because originally you would want to send your spam when no one was around to, to stop you. Now you want to exactly. send your spam so people read it before uh, collectives like before. Gmail because Gmail will pull it out of your inbox and move it to your spam folder if it later finds out that everybody's flagged that as spam. So now they want to get it when you're going to read it immediately. So it's actually a, a behavior that's changed over the last probably five or ten years. Yeah, but it's also funny to see that how the spam drops on weekends yeah. and on big big holidays. So spammers get all the holidays and the sysadmins have to work 24-7. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of humorous and yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. so you're probably thinking to yourself, well, if I can just get these files from U of A and from Peter Hanstein, like, why should I care about your service? Like, yeah, the real-time stuff sounds interesting, but I don't care that much. Well, well the real-time's kind of I important. But... <laughs> real-time's kind of important, but you can, just, you can just change the settings and have it fetch every... At an off time uh, or something, like... Uh at an off time or multiple times per hour right. or whatever you want to do. To the best of my knowledge, though, they only update the file once uh, per hour. Right. Because uh, um, with uh, FreeBSD update and PortSnap and FreeBSD, they have a, a setting mm -hmm. specifically for cron where they'll sleep for a random interval between like 1 and 20 minutes so that everybody doesn't hit right. the server at the top of the hour when they schedule it for midnight. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the other advantage that my list has over the 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 quote official ones is that i also have their whitelist right their whitelist is uh mail systems that have sent more than 10 emails in 75 days mm -hmm. and so uh with the university of alberta and peter hanstein's list uh, i currently have over one hundred five thousand entries in that right. list um, so that's very helpful. So, like most of the Google uh, Mail, IP, right. most of the Google Mail IPs are in there. Most of the other major service providers are in there. Right. Um, and I wouldn't go so far to say these are fully Trust trusted. No, systems, they're just. But they are semi-trusted. Yeah, they're like respected to some degree. Yeah, ex exactly. So these these are systems that are able to at least in my opinion, that they should just skip the graylisting part and go directly to the content filtering and normal email processing that people do. Um, this also has a major advantage of you don't have the 
the 30 minutes gray listing delay mm-hmm. for the first email. Right. Because, yeah, the, the, one of the problems with yeah. gray listing is somebody sends you an email and you say, try again later. You don't get the email until they try again later. Right. Exactly. And, Exactly. A lot of times, and, and, you know, the fact that you send an email and somebody gets it within 30 seconds isn't useful. Yes, and I've had at uh, various companies, I've had a lot of salespeople, management, uh, the CEO come by and say, I'm, I'm on a conference call and they sent me an email. It's very important. I need it. Where is it? Right. Uh, sir, it's, uh, it's in the Yeah, it's, it's kind of floating around in the internet. It'll get here in half an hour. <laughs> Like that's not yeah, helpful. And, and that's not helpful, and they don't—they re- really don't like hearing that. And it's while email's not guaranteed to be real time, it pretty much effectively. Yeah, it's is. a best effort to be real time. It's a best effort to be real time, exactly. And so, and people have gotten used to it being real time, or reasonably real time. So, the, having the whitelist of of going, oh, okay. University of Alberta has talked a lot with this site, and they're not on their blacklist. They're probably trustworthy for me as yeah. well, or Peter Hanstein trusts them, or you know whoever else. Or at any point, you know, this is again, this is only yeah. the first layer, right? They're still going to go through your content it's, filter if you have one. Exactly, and it's you know you're on the internet, you should have a content yeah. filter. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's essentially how how BGP spamd works and, um, and kind of the explanation, the, the overview. Right. And uh, I guess we already kind of answered my other question about what are the pros and cons versus the DNS distribution model, uh, you know, right. versus the website yeah. distribution model, BGP spamd gives you the instant updates that the website can't and also means the mm-hmm. website isn't under this incredible load at the update cycle. And versus exactly. DNS, yeah. you're... You, well, you have a little more control over it, but mostly it's the fact that you're not depending on this third external DNS service where it might be down or under attack or something. With BGP, you, you're copying everything locally, so you're doing the lookup locally. Exactly, exactly. And, and um, if my system does go down or is inaccessible for whatever reason, and uh, and my list are completely, and, and the list that the the copy of the list that you have are completely empty. There is effectively no difference, and there's no, there's no true loss on your email server. Right, it just means the emails will still be processed yeah. at your normal speeds, and more spam uh, might so get you, through you temporarily, prepare. but it's not going to impact performance. Exactly. Whereas the DNS one and, is going to block mm-hmm. incoming requests for at least a couple of seconds, if not more. Right, and depending on how that and how that's configured, it can block forever because yeah. maybe the email server admin decided this is a must pass. Right, or and that could or you know uh, if you've ever tried to SSH into something where DNS lookups are t- left turned on in the SSH daemon, and you don't have a reverse DNS, you have to wait two minutes for the DNS to yep. time out. Well, if every person connecting to send you an email has to wait two minutes, some email servers will give up after thirty seconds. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, as the sender, they don't have time to wait around for you. <laughs> and so then you end up with this thing where your email's not getting delivered because somebody else's DNS service is down. And, you know, as we yes, saw exactly. with, uh, you know, Twitter and the New York Times and a bunch of other places, DNS can be vulnerable if you're not with a good registrar either. <laughs> yes, yes, there's... Yeah, people need to pay a lot more attention to this yeah. sort of thing and to turn on those those protections. Mm-hmm. It's just you know a one click and it takes 
Yeah. Three seconds turn it on, three seconds turn it yeah. off, but you you have to turn it off correctly. Uh, so if somebody wanted to start yeah. using uh, BGP SpamD, what do they need to do? Um, so currently all of my instructions are for OpenBSD mm-hmm. only. Um, I've not sat around and, and tried to figure out all the exact details right. and c- configurations for other systems. But essentially all you really need is a way to connect to BGP and to filter based on community attributes. Right. So um, I have a, a BGP service available at um, rs.bgp-bamd.net, which is uh, available on the web. Which there's a link on the mm-hmm. website, and all the configuration files for OpenBSD are on there. Right, um, and the I've done, uh, OpenBSD's BGPD is on FreeBSD is OpenBGPD, I think. Okay, yeah, so that should yeah. work. Um, in my configurations, I do not modify the routing table. Right. Because all the routes are completely in Right, they're um, made up. Yeah, they're, they're, po- they're pointing you know, 15, 35 hops away. They are on servers that are not routers. They are uh, not configured to receive your, your route or to receive your mm-hmm. traffic. And they just won't do that. However, it is available for you to see who added the IP address to the list. So then you can make... So you could decide, I want to use the list from the University of Alberta, but not the list from Peter Hanstein? Exactly. Exactly. Um, I also do that with the community attributes. So so specifically, um, I use the... um, So... Uh, BGP has a couple special things on it. Um, one of them is called the AS. Right, autonomous system. Autonomous system. And it basically says, I am an entity. And this number represents all of my the, yeah. The, domain. Yeah, this number represents me. Exactly. So, like, uh, for example, um, ATT is a good example. Yep. They have you know, tens of thousands of routers all over the world connected up to, and announcing a huge amount of networks, probably, probably 10, 20,000, um, prefixes. network entry prefixes. Exactly. But they have maybe after all of their Musicians. acquisitions, probably 10 or 15 AS numbers, AS yeah. numbers. Exactly. And so they would announce, uh, the vast majority of these networks with a single AS yeah. number. Um, I don't have an AS number in order to get one, or I, rather, I don't have an officially assigned one from right. me. In order to get one, you have to go to um, Aaron or Ripe or someone. Aaron, Ripe, APAC, right. and etc. And pay a monthly f- and, or a yearly fee. And... It's a yearly fee. It's, it's not, not too bad in bad. Europe. It's, it's 500 euros a, a year, yeah. I believe. I think it's about uh, but, 500 US from Aaron. I'm not, I don't recall. Okay. But you have to have at yeah. least so but much IP a- space already, which is a separate cost. And- <laughs> That's, that's a lot yeah. of money. Yeah, yeah. That part gets expensive. Um, however, thankfully, they have a private AS range similar to the RFC nineteen eighteen private IP addresses. And so I'm using one of those for my AS. Right. So it's um, AS six five zero six six is my network. Um, and then I use uh, two communities to to declare if a IP address is on a blacklist or on the whitelist. Uh, blacklist have the prefix of 666, and the white. And the, the whitelist is uh, 42. The whitelists have the suffix of 42. 
Sorry, your Skype broke up for just... a second there. Oh, okay. Yep. Sorry about that. Okay. There you go. You're back. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. Um, so I'll just repeat some of that. Um, so. Uh, right. The yeah, the so blacklist we... is uh, assigned to the community six six six, and the whitelist is forty two. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Good use of magic um, numbers. <laughs> exactly. They're they're magic numbers, but they generally have. A, a, a clear yeah, anybody can look at that and know which one's which. We hope yes. so, yes. Um, but what I also do, is, so each community is the combination of the AS and a suffix of some, of some amount, right. which both are um, 60, with, like, within 64K. Right. And so what I do is I mark all the entries that I, I distribute with the with my AS the sixty five zero six six, and then the type, but then I also include the the community attribute of the sending server. Right. So for example, um, University of Alberta uses sixty five zero forty forty three for their AS, so you can do filters based on that as well. Right. And BGP has has uh, wonderful uh, wonderful filters. For, for that sort of thing, and, and filtering on community is, is extremely common. Right, it's, it's basically so how it's very, very well, people yeah, make it's, their it's BGP rule sets. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, you, you definitely don't want to be doing this by hand. Everyone just does it with, with communities. Um, occasionally, you'll do it based on ASs, but if it's not your direct peer, then usually you don't care. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I communicate all of this uh, to all the client, so you can see, oh, this is on you know, several lists, or it's on, yeah. So you can see, yeah, exactly. You can see this entry is on multiple lists, or it's only on one list. And um, so currently, OpenBGPD does not have any filtering capabilities to make a decision. It needs to be on in multiple communities. Right. Um. That's the kind of thing the the regular BGP uh, network operators really wouldn't use. Right. They really don't care about that sort of thing. Um, right. So yeah. So so yeah. So you can see all of the community attributes. Um, one thing that we also do is we ensure that every single entry. Is only is only host specific. Right. We um, if it's in there, it's a slash thirty two for IPv four. Uh, currently, there are no IPv six addresses in it because SpamD does not support IPv six. It's a side project of mine. I need to continue working yeah. on. Uh, for the longest time, there was no need yes, because because there were no IPv six addresses actually in. Right, and nobody would try to use it to send email. <laughs> Exactly. Like for oh, for probably five plus years, the only IPv6 email I got was from the NetBeast mailing right. lists, and they were only um, using IPv6 to show off. It wasn't it like it was kind of more of a toy and a test. It wasn't really meant to. If you if you're trying to ensure that somebody will receive your email, you probably don't want to use IPv6 for it. 
Right. Well, what what they did is that they just had dual home right. uh, mail servers with both IPv4 and IPv6. Right. And so if you had an MX and, record that uh, published a v6 address, then it would connect. Exactly. Exactly. And and I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had IPv6 on my server for. Uh, the longest I can go back in my records is uh, I had a, I had a, an entry in, in my CVS logs that I turned it off for some for one of my subdomains in 2002 because <laughs> some people were having problems connecting. Okay. Uh, so I've I've had IPv6 on my servers for a, an extremely long time and I've been kind of watching this. Yep. Um, actually, about within the last six months, I finally started getting my first IPv6 spam. Oh. Um, well, somebody was so going to be first eventually, I, I suppose. Eh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's going to happen. And as it gets um, worse, you'll be more and more motivated to finish your project. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, right now, I have other things to to work yeah. on, like the, the BGP spamdy system. Um, I have a whole bunch of other projects that I'm uh, not spending nearly as much time as right. I right. Well, that, that's on. actually my next two questions. Yeah. Firstly, uh, okay, how can yeah. other people contribute to BGP spamdy? Is there anything you need or, or things people could help work on? Um, most, of the, most of the technical parts are well taken care of. Um, I am interested in hearing from uh, people with people, like possible spam source systems. So people that want to be a server in my network. Right. Or people uh, that have really, a, a blacklist, they might want to. You might be interested in using. Exactly. Um, I would want to talk to them first. Right. I want to be very, very careful about who I accept in. Right, because um, everybody that's using this is trusting your judgment on who gets on this list. Exactly. 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 I have essentially promised all my users that I have you know these specific rules: twenty-four hours for the blacklist, and only when you send a spam only when you send an email to a spam trap right. email address um i really don't want to get into any of the politics of citing who's a spammer who's not a spammer right or which I emails are to... you signed up for and which one yeah, it's mostly just people that are exactly. scraping or generating email addresses exactly i i only want to focus on those people for mm-hmm. now um also in different regions right so like for example uh university of alberta they don't receive a lot of email from Poland, for no, example, or exactly. and vice versa. So, like Peter Hanstein is, is his sources are primarily in Norway, and they okay. There's some, but not a huge amount of emails being done with like Australia right. or Japan, and so uh, entities in different countries that would, would be, be a good source material for the whitelist of of places that have sent email that isn't. Both for the whitelist and the blacklists, yeah. um, there's uh, quite a few emails or quite a few IP addresses that only show up in one or the other and not in both. Right. For, the, for example, you know, in yeah. Japan, a lot of people, if you're writing email in Japanese, you probably don't send all that much email to Norway. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And the spammers would, they would be targeting the IP addresses yeah. in Japan or in Norway or, or pick, your, pick your favorite mm-hmm. country. Um, so yeah, so entities in different uh, locations, uh, I do like it would be wonderful if they could contact mm-hmm. me if you're interested. Um, I do ask that you have a minimum of at least five thousand entries right. in your blacklist. Otherwise, it's not um, worth the effort for maintaining pulling all these lists. Exactly, exactly. Like I, I, I will investigate. 
um, what you guys are doing and because I want to be exactly as we said, very, very careful. And you only have so much time and you can't be managing a bunch of lists that have 100 IPs on them. <laughs> exactly. And because if it only has that many IPs, it's also likely to just disappear one day. Right. Well, that's thankfully not a big right. deal. If it disconnects, then I only notice when I log in and when I, when I mm -hmm. check it. Um, I don't have any monitoring on this right now, but that's yep. fine. Um, yeah, so that's probably the, the, the primary way people can help. Um, also, if people want to use the list, people are, uh, this is uh, completely open source. Um, all the software I'm using for this is available on the website. Um, all of the software I am writing, um, if it's a patch for something, um, I uh, attempt to get it into OpenBSD. If it's not accepted in OpenBSD, I work with the other developers. So it, it can be added right. to, to OpenBSD. Um, if somebody wants to figure out how to make this work on FreeBSD or Linux or, you know, on, on your big Cisco's or yep. whatever, that would also be very Yeah, useful. I was going to say, you know, if somebody had a tutorial on how to do it on FreeBSD, you'd be interested in having a link to that or something. Exactly. Um, I can provide a link, um, uh, with, I, one of my preferred methods is actually get permission and then host it yep. locally so people can see. So yeah, the tutorial's you know, right it's there. Local on my yep. website, exactly, and I don't have to worry about losing a blog link because somebody decided to change their yep. layout. Um, hmm, that actually brings me to another important point: mm -hmm. is um, the blacklist. How do you deal with this? So the naive solution would just be to block it uh, in your in your yep. firewall. This has a couple problems, though. The number one problem will become very clear as I tell a small story. You block an IP address. It was some marketing guy working for a company who bought a shady list of, of email addresses. And he, he sends an email and it gets blocked. It gets, it gets uh, sent to a spam trap address and gets added to the block list. The, the marketing guy doesn't see it because he just sends out uh, the, the email with his email delivery yep. service. And then later that afternoon, the CEO of the same company is in a very important business call with your CEO for the company that you work for. And they're negotiating you know, a multi-million dollar deal. They are looking to you know, do something very big. And the CEO, and so they send your CEO an email and your CEO comes in and says, hey, you know, where is this email? I, I need mm -hmm. it. Like, we're having a conference call. I need the email. Oh, yeah, it's, it's been blacklisted. What? What do you mean it's been blacklisted? What, what's wrong with you? And, and then the email's, the email's right. gone, depending on how you set up your blacklist. Yeah. Um, and the other, the other CEO goes to his guy and goes, "Well, where's the like? Where's the email? Why can't you receive it?" And the other email admin looks at his logs. Oh well, there's no response from their yeah. Server. Their email server's down. It looks like their email server's down. Exactly. Exactly. He tries to connect by hand because you know, we all we all know SMTP by yes. heart, so we can actually type it out. It's just through telling yeah. it. And 
He goes, yeah, it's, it's down. Look, see? Like, I can't ping it. I can't, it's I can't connect to it. At all, to it. Yeah. It's, it's down. I don't know. And then now the CEO of the other company decides, well, I don't really want to work with somebody who doesn't have a... Uh, a reliable email a server. Email. Exactly. They don't have a reliable email server. Do we really want to do business with them? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, so, the correct way is usually to send a, a, an SMTP error message saying, go away. <laughs> Exactly. And so that's what SpamD does in the default mode for blacklists, that the blacklist it downloads from a mm. website. And this does, um, and so what it, what it does is that it just says, error 451, you are listed on a blacklist, X. You know, your deliveries will, not, will be blocked for 24 yeah. hours. Stop spamming so and then the, try again in 24 hours. <laughs> exactly. But it also... But oftentimes it also tells you which list it right. was on. That way so at you least, can at least have someone to contact, and, right? Exactly. So, you, so if you care enough, you actually know what's happening. Exactly. And uh, if you – so in, in, my, in my configurations that I have on the website, this all describes how to set it up in that method. Right. And how to make sure that those IP addresses are added to the blacklist. So that way, SpamD will tell them, hey, you're a spammer, yep. go away. You're a spammer, go away. And this way, in the scenario of the, of the story... The, the, the first CEO you know, the, gets a bounce message saying, hey, your IP is on a blacklist. He doesn't get, he doesn't get a bounce no? message. Well, well that's on, on their side, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, he wouldn't get the, the bounce message. He would just get... But the email server admin would have an entry in his log. And be like, oh, right. Saying, this is our fault. Oh. Okay, I exactly. Like, and then this allows you to investigate and find out why you were blacklisted, yep. as opposed to just thinking, "Oh, they're, they're yep. down." Like, what's what's yeah, up with that? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So yeah, yeah, uh, that's great. And uh, I guess is, is there anything else interesting you're working on? You mentioned other projects that you don't um, have enough time for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the the biggest one that I'm working on is um, so the routing domains that I that we opened with is uh, I'm working on supporting IPv6 mm, yep. for this. Um, so right now in OpenBSD, we only support IPv4. In the routing domains? Or in, in, in the routing domains. In, no, in, okay. in routing domains. Uh, in general, we have fairly wide support for IPv6. Mm -hmm. um, we have, uh, in nearly all of the base systems, AMD is actually the only thing I can think of off the top of my head that doesn't have v6 in it. Like SSH does, yeah. um, like all all of the the standard Apache does, all of the standard tools do. Okay. Um, but yeah, so unfortunately, we do not support um, IPv6 in routing domains. So you can only have one IPv6 routing table. Um, this is something I've been working on off and on for an embarrassingly long time. And uh, actually, recently, I was able to to make some really good progress. And so now I only have one thing that fails instead of everything that fails. That's quite an improvement. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm, I'm very happy about that. And I just need to uh, yank more time from somewhere yeah. and then finish that up. Um, that's probably the, the biggest next thing that I'm working on. Go ahead and I'll yep. just give a brief introduction yes. to who I am. So my name is uh, Chris Moore. Um, I live out in the Knoxville, Tennessee area, um, out in the Smoky Mountains, of course, USA. 
Um, I'm the founder of the PCBSD project and the lead developer over there. So I spend all day writing GUIs and backends and fixing packages and trying to push out updates for folks. But uh, I've been doing this now for uh, seven, eight years-ish. Before that, I worked on uh, various Linuxes, even some SCO Unix back in the day, which was a lot of fun. But uh, anyway, I'm really glad to be moved on. We're on BSD yeah. now. But uh, that, that's what I do for my day job. And part of that is going to a lot of trade shows and giving talks and talking to folks at conferences. So if you can make it out to any of these Linux shows, please come on out. Oh, Fubar was asking in the chat room, what's TrueOS? So that's that's the server version of PCBSD. So it's basically all our utilities, except the just the command line versions, and you can get a, a straight-up console, and you don't need X and KD. Yeah, so it's FreeBSD plus all of the PCBSD shell scripts and command line tools yeah, and all so the fun stuff. Example would be like our warden utility, which will let you do jail management, or the, the new life preserver utility. We have a command line version that lets you set up ZFS replication. So if you want to replicate your server or file server or whatever, you can, you can do that with our utils. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So now we have a tutorial, Uh, just a a smaller one this time, uh, but we'll have a more in-depth one next week. Uh, You know, we're just getting the plumbing sorted out so we can actually do these properly. All right, guys, we're going to be doing a tutorial now. So today, here's the scenario. Say you're on an untrusted network, be it on a corporate or university, or maybe you're at a foreign hotel, and you want to tunnel all your traffic through SSH to your trusted server back home, right? You know, we can't have any pesky script kitties sniffing your traffic. But, of course, when you go to try, you can't get out on port 22. You can't get out on that or any other random port you use for SSH either because they're pretty much filtering everything except ports 80 and 443. Sometimes just running SSH on port 443 will let you get past this. But other times there's deep packet inspection in place to prevent that. And any IDS will be able to easily detect SSH on whatever port you run it on. So we're going to have to find a way to hide it in plain sight. So let's bring S-Tunnel into the equation. S-Tunnel is a simple tool that's going to let you encapsulate traffic of any protocol in standard SSL TLS. Your stream of packets will look exactly like a connection to your Gmail or anything else. The setup's really pretty simple. You'll need S-Tunnel installed on both your client PC and on a remote server with SSHD already running. So let's go ahead and uh, get it installed here, Alan. Go ahead and yeah. take it away. So uh, just do a package install S-Tunnel. And boom, we have S-Tunnel. Isn't PackageNG great? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so the next thing we need is a config file. So user local etc S-Tunnel, stunnel.conf. And we just add a very bare bones config here. We'll define our cert. Uh, put our PID in S-Tunnel. Can you tell I'm not used to using VI? <laughs> what do you normally Nano? use? Nano. your choice. <laughs> but oh, I don't want to get made guy. fun of on the live streams. <laughs> oh, I gotcha, I gotcha. There we go. And then we'll add a simple thing for SSH. Where we'll say we'll accept connections on our IP on port 443. And then route them out again over localhost on port 22. So when someone connects to us on port 443, we'll set up an SSL session and connect them to localhost port 22, which is your uh, SSH. So now we need to make an SSL certificate. So we can just do a quick self-signed certificate. 
I didn't do what I wanted, but there we go. Uh, and then we will make a new certificate. So let's request a new certificate uh, using the key we just made. Make it expire in a thousand days. And then concatenate the certificate and the key into a single PEM encoded file so that we have uh, SNL reads it all from one file instead of having to have two, because that's the way its configuration works. And then we'll secure the file so that no one other than root can read it, because we don't want other people to have our secret key, because then it wouldn't be a secret key. Mm-hmm. Make the directory. Okay, so now we can start S tunnel. start S tunnel and it works. Ignore that other stuff where it wasn't working. And if we look, we can see S tunnel is running on port 443. So that's uh, on our machine where we want to be able to SSH into. So now we need to set up the client machine, the one would be like our laptop or whatever at the hotel. So uh, we'll flip displays. Zing. Okay, so now we're on another machine where we need to install S tunnel. Uh, this time I'll do the ports way just to show you the difference. That doesn't look so good. <laughs> anyway, now it's uh, installing everything that we need installed. This is what we used yes. to do. Before we had package ng. Mm-hmm. Alright. Not so bad, but could have been faster. Now we have to make a config file again, so we'll do an stunnel.conf. It looks very much the same. And the big difference is we put client equals yes. And then we make another SSH thing where we accept connections on port 443 and we connect out to our first server on port 443. 
And then we need to uh, copy the certificate over from the other machine. So we'll do. So that would be what you do before you get to the yes. hotel. You can't read <laughs> yeah. the machine. You want to do the whole setup before you get to the hotel and then just deal with the getting connected. Yeah, I found out that the hard way last year in Poland. Set up my VPN at home and forgot to uh, open up the firewall port. Ah, I've done something similar. Um, I did... I uh, was uh, setting up a Windows box and I enabled remote desktop on it so that I'd be able to remote admin it and then put it in the rack where there was no way to connect a monitor to it and realized... I hadn't opened the firewall port for that. No, so uh, sure everyone's been bit by that at one point or another. It's a, a war story on my other podcast, TechSnap, where I did the NetSH commands to open the Windows firewall on those ports using a keyboard with no monitor. So I just I typed every command twice, hoping that if I made a typo, I'd get it right the second time. <laughs> I was just like completely guessing. Uh, it was it was fun to use a, a Windows machine with with no feedback at all, other than you know when i did control delete and logged in did the hard drive lights start blinking like crazy like it's actually loading logging me in <laughs> so now we can start s tunnel on the first machine ah helps if you don't typo stuff in the config file ah there now it's running we can see here So now you can see if we connect to ourself on port 443, we actually get SSH from the other machine. And so we can uh, do SSH to now at a local host on port 443. I'm now on the other machine. Huh, take that crummy hotel yep. wife. <laughs> And uh, you can then use an SSH tunnel to set up a SOX proxy and point your web browser at it, and now you, all your traffic can go through the tunnel. And uh, that's the gist of the tutorial. Does this mean I can watch Netflix in Europe? Possibly. It depends how fast your hotel internet is. All right, yeah. lightning round. Here we go. You can do that the first one. I'll go ahead and start this one up here. NetBSD 6.1.1 was released. This is the first security bug fix update of the NetBSD 6.1 release branch. It fixes four security vulnerabilities and adds four new sysctls to avoid IPv6 DDoS attacks and, of course, miscellaneous other updates. Some, uh, you know, every time you get a new sysctl, is great. Having control over stuff is important. Oh, yeah, definitely. Being able to tweak your system out yeah. like that, everyone appreciates it. Uh, Pseudo Mastery, the uh, book Michael Lucas is working on, to, because almost everyone uses sudo for something, but a lot of people don't actually understand all the power and control you actually have there, or the uh, proper best practices for actually configuring it. Uh, so his book uh, isn't out yet, but if you buy the incomplete draft uh, now, you get the completed version when it comes out, and uh, you also save $3. Uh, so for $7.99, you can get Pseudo Mastery, and uh, you know, 
not do it wrong. I'm checking his article here. Does he have a time frame on when it's supposed to be released? I don't think he does that, but it's pretty far along already. Uh, there's only the last couple chapters that aren't finished yet, and uh, he writes like a thousand words a day or more, so it, it usually comes along pretty quickly. I need to add that to yep. my life. Uh, and he already has existing books if you want to try a finished one instead. Uh, he has SSH Mastery, uh, DNSSEC Mastery, and a bunch of others, including Absolute OpenBSD. Uh, there's an Absolute FreeBSD, but it's rather old now. Uh, maybe he'll get around to doing another one at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the other interesting the thing, list. I didn't know that uh, okay. Sudo is actually originally from OpenBSD. I did not know mm-hmm. that. Those guys come with a lot of really yeah, cool all the stuff. Cool stuff. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, so next up, the Documentation Infrastructure Enhancements. Uh, the FreeBSD Foundation has uh, funded this project. Uh, Gabor Kovazdan, uh, don't shoot me if yep. I got that wrong, has completed a funded project to improve the infrastructure behind the documentation project. It will upgrade documentation from DocBook 4.2 to DocBook 4.5 and at the same time migrate to proper XML tools. Uh, DSSSL is old, dead standard, which isn't going to evolve anymore, and a new DocBook 5.0 tree has been added. Yep. Uh- as I've been working on docs, there's been a, a kind of some changes happening, you know, when I'm rewriting the ZFS part of the handbook, trying to implement these changes at the same time. But uh, quite a few changes that are making things a lot easier uh, using entities for things. So instead of actually writing someone's email address in uh, the documentation, you put this entity for them. And that way, if their email address changes, it gets updated and it makes it easier to remove people uh, and or replace people with and so on, things like that. That's pretty cool. Uh, And then we have uh, FreeBSD FIBS, uh, which is forward information bases. It's uh, multiple routing tables. Uh, During our interview earlier in the episode, we talked with uh, Peter Hessler, and OpenBSD has routing domains, which is this way to have multiple routing tables. Uh, FreeBSD has something similar called FIBS, uh, but there was a recent commit uh, that allows you to do more with them. Uh, The FreeBSD kernel can now compile... uh, you know, you can have multiple fibs, but they've added uh, a new column to the display in PS to actually show you which fib a different process is uh, associated with. So when you use set fib to say, you know, this command, uh, this process or this jail should do all of its routing through this separate routing table, you can now look up which routing table the process is using using PS. Oh, yeah, it's handy. like, how did we not think of that before? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, still, better late than ever. That's really cool. All right, next up, we got uh, FreeNAS 9.1.0 and 9.1.1 have been released. Yeah, when we started Um, writing the show notes for the show, they got ahead of us and did another release already. All right. (laughs) They just pushed them out faster. So a lot of improvements in pretty much all areas across the board. It's a big upgrade. It's based on FreeBSD 9 stable, brings in a lot of new ZFS features that have uh, come down the pike from FreeBSD. They've even cherry-picked a bunch of features from 10 current and brought them back into the FreeNAS 9 series. It has a new volume manager and a new easy-to-use plug-in management system for adding uh, your other applications, like, say, a transmission, uh, etc. Yep, and it looks like Plex is coming along to eventually be in there as well. Yep, yep. They're working on that as well. Um, 9.1.1 is released shortly after to fix a couple UI bugs and plug-in bugs, but uh, it's ready and up on the website now. Give it a whirl. And then... uh, FreeBSD has now switched to a BSD license patch because uh, the previous one was uh, GNU licensed or GPL. Uh, and so they've had BSD patch for a while, but 
you know, unless you set uh, variables in your bank.conf or source.conf, it still used the GNU one. Uh, but now the default is, uh, so when you run the patch command, it runs BSD patch. And if you want GNU patch, you have to run it manually. And yeah, and hopefully it's uh, it's pretty compatible. I haven't heard too yep, much. Yep, and uh, list port yet. manager has checked and approved that it works with all ports already. So uh, we already know that it works. And so if you still need it, you have to add the build flag with GNU patch in order for your source tree to be built with GNU patch instead of BSD patch. Yes, uh, cool. continue our project of you know, getting rid of the GPL. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, there's a wiki page with status on that uh, although it's a little out of date as things on wikis tend to get sometimes it'll probably get updated right after yes. Euro yes I imagine with uh, all the stuff that happens at a dev summit mm -hmm. uh, but that's it finally we're at the end of the first episode <laughs> oh fantastic this yes uh, so we have another episode next week uh, shows live on Wednesdays at 2pm Eastern which is 1800 UTC uh, and then it'll be out for download usually I'm guessing thursday mornings maybe later maybe earlier it depends on a lot of things uh the first couple might be a little slower because there's a lot more work to be done uh but mm -hmm. uh we should have a decent release schedule there'll be rss feeds and everything you'll be able to subscribe and with your rss reader or itunes or whatever you like to do uh but also we'd like to hear comments from you uh, do you have ideas for segments or comments or anything uh you can email feedback at bsdnow.tv and that will go to chris and i and uh, tj and everybody that helps with the bsd now podcast oh great thank yes, you so much and thank chris for joining me and all of you for watching and uh see you next week